seat in front of you. It is red. Go ahead and grab it. Luke is uh, towards the back if you don't know where it is. Flip to the middle and keep going towards the back. It's one of the four Gospels, one of the stories of the fellow journeyers into Jerusalem and around the city as we've watched Jesus and what he said. We have watched and wondered what would they have heard as Jesus wept over the city. We have watched and wondered what they would have heard as Jesus so kindly escorted the temple vendors out of their, their uh, approved locations to sell. Last week, after the clearing out of the money changers and the sacrifice sellers, our text told us that Jesus taught daily in the temple. This week, we pick up some of that teaching, some of that interaction. We are in Luke chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people and preaching the good news in the temple, the leading priests, the teachers of religious law, and the elders came up to him. They demanded, by what authority are you doing all these things? Who gave you the right? Let me ask you a question first, Jesus replied. Did John's authority to baptize come from heaven, or was it merely human? Verse 5. They talked it over amongst themselves. They said, if, if we say it was from heaven, he will ask why we didn't believe John. But if we say it was merely human, the people will stone us because they are convinced John was a prophet. So they replied to Jesus, we don't know. Jesus responded, then I won't tell you by what authority I do these things either. Who's in charge here anyways? Who gave you the ability to do and say the things you have been doing and saying? These were the questions that those in authority were asking Jesus that day. And you've got to understand, they were right in asking those questions. They were, after all, the leading priests, the teachers of religious law, and the elders. These were the three groups that made up the Jewish Sanhedrin the ruling party of the Jews, and this group had been given authority over the temple by the Romans, the ruling party of that area. They'd even been given right to execute any Gentile who went further into the temple than they were allowed to go. So this group of priests, this group of religious leaders, this group of elders could look down at their loan tag and see that it said, in charge, as deemed by the Romans, and they realized they had the right to ask Jesus why he could do those things. So we watch as Jesus comes into the temple, makes a big scene, and then keeps teaching. And this group comes and says, hey, who's in charge here anyways? Uh, Jesus' question back to them, the one about John the Baptist, it was a common debating technique used in that day. And it would not have been seen as any more anti-establishment than any of the other things Jesus had said or done up to that point. As you can see, the leaders were in a bind. They have no answer that would give them a win, if we want to call it that. I mean, answer that John's authority was from God, and the religious leaders would look dumb for not following him. Answer it was from man, and the people would have rioted. This was a lose-lose situation, and the leaders knew it. So they were one of the first people ever to plead the Fifth Amendment. We don't know, they replied. 
Jesus responded back to them, Then I won't tell you either by what authority I do these things. Now in saying this, we could say, well, shoot, Jesus didn't answer their question then. But he goes on to tell a story which we will ultimately see he does answer their question. Who gives you this authority? Continuing on in Luke chapter 20, verse 9. Now Jesus turned to the people again and told them this story. A man planted a vineyard, leased it to tenant farmers, and moved to another country to live for several years. At the time of the grape harvest, he sent one of his servants to collect his share of the crop. But the farmers attacked the servant, beat him up, and sent him back empty-handed. So the owner sent another servant. But they also insulted him, beat him up, and sent him away empty-handed. And yet a third man was sent, and they wounded him and chased him away. What will I do? The owner asked. I know. I'll send my cherished son. Surely they will respect him. Verse 14. But when the tenant farmers saw his son, they said to one another, Here comes the the heir to the estate. Let's kill him. And let's get the estate for ourselves. So they dragged him out of the vineyard and murdered him. What do you suppose the owner of the vineyard will do? Jesus asked. I'll tell you. He will come back and kill those farmers and lease the vineyard to others. Those listening to Jesus that day protested, oh, how terrible that such a thing should ever happen. Jesus looked at them and said, then what does the Scripture mean? The stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces and it will crush anyone it falls on. The teachers of religious law and the leading priests wanted to arrest Jesus immediately because they realized he was telling the story against them. They were the wicked farmers, but they were afraid of the people's reaction. Commentator William Barclay, in his 1955 commentary on Luke, writes this The meaning of this parable is crystal clear. The vineyard stands for the nation of Israel. The tenants are the rulers of Israel, into whose hands the nation was entrusted. The messengers are the prophets who were disregarded, persecuted, and killed. The Son is Jesus himself. And the doom is that the place in which Israel should have occupied is to be given to others. We get this pretty clear, don't we? But what about those listening to Jesus that day? What did they hear? The ones who were watching the debate between Jesus and those with boss on their name tag. What did they hear in this story? Similar to last week, I think we can divide up those listening into two groups. Uh, Different than last week, it's not the Jews and the Gentiles. Those two groups that were listening that day were the oblivious ones and the keen ones. Those that were oblivious and those that were keen. First, let's look at the oblivious ones. Jesus, he tells this great story. It's captivating, it's compelling, it's drama, it's deception, it's evil. It has all the things that people in that day would have been able to relate to immediately. See, it was not uncommon for a wealthy landowner to buy some land and then lease it out to to tenant farmers and go away for a while. 
give the land a chance to, for the seeds to grow and, and, and the, the crops to produce a yield. It was not uncommon then when, when it came time to collect the crop that the landowner would send someone to get that, upwards of half the crop as his payment for the property. And more than likely it wouldn't have been he's going to collect a whole bunch of grapes. He would have gone and collected the wine that was made from the grapes, perchance already bottled and ready to go. Now many of those listening to Jesus that day may very well have been in this situation themselves. The workers in the field who were working for that wealthy landowner. So they would have been paying full attention when Jesus told this story. And yet I call them the oblivious ones. Because I believe when they heard the story, they were oblivious to the deeper meaning behind it. Right after Jesus, is finish, Jesus finishes, they exclaim, Oh, please tell me this couldn't be. Oh, please tell me that such a terrible thing couldn't ever happen. They simply didn't make the connection between the story itself and the live drama that was playing out. The fact that Jesus was telling the story of Israel. It'd be like the oblivious ones then being compared to somebody who could go to the Lord of the Rings movie and not make the connection that Tolkien was making between the battle of good and evil. Right? The oblivious ones would be like those who watched a movie that's 10, 12, 15 years old, The Matrix, and not have been able to say, huh, there's, there's something more to this. Those listening to Jesus were oblivious. They were the ones looking up at the clouds saying, huh, man, good story. What else do I have to do to get ready for this Passover celebration? Maybe they were so busy that they didn't take time to think through the meaning of Jesus' story. Maybe they were the ones whose parents didn't sit down at night and read them the Torah before going to bed. Or maybe they were the ones in the the court of Gentiles who didn't have any Old Testament history in them. It simply didn't take. They just didn't get it. Oh, Jesus, how could such a terrible thing ever happen? Please tell me it's not so. They were oblivious to the story Jesus was telling. What would they have heard that day? A good story. Granted, it was one that may have unsettled them a bit, but a good story nonetheless. Now what about those who were a little bit more keen? The other group, what would they have heard? I want to think that they got it. They understood what Jesus was getting at, and our text is pretty clear about that. Verse 19, the keen ones, the teachers of the religious law, the leading priests, they wanted to arrest Jesus immediately because they realized he was telling the story against them. They were the wicked farmers. You see, they got it. They were listening to Jesus, thinking to themselves, hmm, ooh, ooh, yeah, He can't say that. They got it. And I would guess more than simply understanding Jesus' story, they were drawn back to Old Testament texts that had striking similarities to the story Jesus was telling. Where God had compared Israel to a vineyard and where he allowed crazy destruction to take place. Maybe they thought back to Jeremiah 12, verse 10, when God says, Many rulers have ravaged my vineyard trampling down the vines and turning all its beauty into a barren wilderness. Perhaps the keen ones thought of the prophet Hosea when he said, How prosperous Israel is! A luxuriant vine loaded with fruit, but the richer the people get, the more pagan altars they build. 
The more bountiful their harvest, the more beautiful their sacred pillars. The keen listeners that day, I think they would have seen the connection between Jesus' story and the words of the psalmist. Just listen to Psalm 80, verse 8 through 15. The psalmist writes, You brought us from Egypt like a grapevine. You drove away the pagan nations and transplanted us into your land. You cleared the ground for us and we took root and filled the land. Our shade covered the mountains and our branches covered the mighty cedars. We spread our branches west to the Mediterranean Sea and our shoots spread east over the Euphrates River. But now... The psalmist writes, Why have you broken down our walls, God, so that all who pass by may steal our fruit? The wild boar from the forest devours it, and the wild animals feed on it. Come back, we beg you, O God of heaven's armies. Look down from heaven and see our plight. Take care of this grapevine that you yourself have planted, this son you have raised for yourself. See some similarities there? The keen listeners, they got it. They understood. And those are just a few of the texts I think they would have been drawn back to. Now, if those had been ringing in their ears, listen to the text that would have sent a gonging in their heart as Jesus told this story. Isaiah chapter 5, 1-7. Again, you can just listen. Now I will sing a song for the one I love. A song about his vineyard. My beloved has a vineyard on a rich and fertile hill. He plowed the land, cleared its stones, and planted it with the best vines. In the middle, he built a watchtower and carved a wine press in the nearby rocks. Then he waited for a harvest of sweet grapes. But the grapes that grew were bitter. Now, you people of Jerusalem and Judah, you judge between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done for my vineyard that I have not already done? When I expected sweet grapes, why did my vineyard give me bitter grapes? Verse 5 says, Now let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will tear down its hedges and let it be destroyed. I will break down its walls and let the animals trample it. I will make it a wild place where the vines are not pruned and the ground is not hoed, a place overgrown with briars and thorns. I will command the clouds to drop no rain on it. And if that isn't bad enough... Isaiah goes on to explain, he says, The nation of Israel is the vineyard of the Lord of heaven's armies. The people of Judah are his pleasant garden. He expected a crop of justice, but instead he found oppression. He expected to find righteousness, but instead God heard cries of violence. I'm fairly confident that that passage would have floated through the minds of the keen listeners that day. So it was no wonder they got so mad so quickly. Not only did Jesus come into the temple and start clearing people out and start saying some things that were pretty pointed, things that that had them going to him and saying, who gave you your authority? He then comes in and tells a story that they saw right through. And they saw that it was a story that connected with themselves. I mean, Luke 20, 19 They wanted to arrest Jesus immediately because they realized he was telling the story against them. They were the wicked farmers. Now, I would guess, and I'm speculating that they would have also made the connection between the story Jesus just told and the original question they asked him. Remember that question? Who gives you authority to do this? 
And then they're thinking through that story. Okay, uh, the, the, the vineyard God. Ooh. Ooh, that's how it is. If they were still thinking about the prophet Isaiah, it was pretty clear in there who had authority. It was God when he said, now let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will tear down its hedges and let it be destroyed. I will break down its walls and let the animals trample it. I will make it a wild place. I will command the clouds to drop no rain. I think the keen ones would have been listening thinking, okay, God is the owner of the vineyard. God is the one doing it. Jesus told a story about a vineyard owner. God, ooh, is he really saying that? Is he really saying that? So you go back to the story Jesus told. And the question, who ultimately was in charge in that story was the owner of the vineyard, right? I mean, what happened at the end of the story? After the tenant farmers killed the son, the owner says, well, what, what should I do? I'll tell you, Jesus said, he will come and kill those farmers and lease the vineyard to others. God, I mean the vineyard owner, I mean God. You see the connection? Let's take a brief rabbit trail that might help with it. In, text, in the text, in verse 15 and in verse 13, there's the word owner. The Greek word there is kurios. Now it does mean owner, but it can also be translated as Lord. And I wonder if the keen ones listening made that connection too. Listen to verse 13 with both translations of Curios. What will I do? The owner asked himself. I know, I'll send my cherished son. Surely they will respect him. Now if Curios is translated Lord. What will I do? The Lord asked himself. I know, I'll send my cherished son. Surely they will respect him. Using the term owner or Lord and inputting owner or Lord sending his son, Jesus wasn't being too tricky there. He was answering their initial question of who gave you that authority? He sent his son. And when all is said and done, the Lord, the owner, comes back and kicks some tail. Who's in charge? God, right? Not those who came in demanding that day to Jesus, who gives you this authority? Not those who think they have the genealogical pedigree or the proper family tree to put them in the positions they had. Hey, they were not the ones in charge. At least they would have heard that. They were the keen ones. What do we hear? When we hear a story like that, what do we today hear? Any of us are going to argue with the Barclay commentary quote that I read earlier with the great explanation of the story and its key players. Even though at times I like to argue with the scholars, I'm going to agree with him on this one too. I think that's what Jesus meant when he told the story. But I do think if we look closely at the story, we will be able to see a little bit more battle for authority going on than what those listening to Jesus saw that day. And I think in some sense, each one of us could put ourselves in the story, in the different forms of authority that are, that are being sought after. Because let's face it, we all, to some degree, like to be in control. So let's look at the different types of authority we see in the story. 
First, there's the obvious one. There's the, there's the power plays going on. There's the, those seeking authority that have the positional authority. Those that have the title. They're the ones that came in, robes flowing behind them, demanding Jesus gave the answers. They're the ones with the nameplates on their desk, the company cars, and the suit and tie to prove that they're the boss. They are the ones in positional authority. That's the first type. Now there's another type that we see. There's situational authority. In the parable itself, we see the tenants of the field seeking this type of authority. In verse 14 and verse 15, Jesus tells the story. He says, When the tenant farmers saw the son, they said to one another, Here comes the heir to the estate. Let's kill him. Let's get the estate for ourselves. So they murdered him after dragging him out of the vineyard. 14 says, They said to each other, or they talked over the matter. Greek word there is the word we get dialogue from. It means to think about, to wonder, to discuss. To talk about. Now, is this a group seeking power? Sounds like it. Sounds to me like a group of kids on the playground saying, hmm, we want to play over there. Let's get enough of our buddies, and we'll just go take that part over. We're going to own the slide, this recess. Situational authority. Now, when I looked at this part of the story, I, initially I thought, man, how dumb can they be? How could they think that if they killed the son, they're going to get, you know, they're going to get the field? Historically, when the owner of the land died, it would become the property of those who occupied it at the time he died. So it isn't too far-fetched to think that the tenants, they may have assumed that the original owner had died and he was now sending his heir to take back over the field. And thus, if they killed him, the last remaining heir, the field would be theirs, the vineyard would be theirs. Makes a little bit more sense than I initially gave them credit for. Those people were seeking situational authority. So we've seen that, and we've seen positional authority. Do you guys fit with either of those yet? Let me give you a couple more. We see other authority taking place in the story, although those in the story didn't even know that they had it. It's the people, the masses. In verse 6 and in verse 19, we see that the leaders of the, the priests, the, the religious leaders, they were scared to do anything because they were afraid what the people may do. The last part of verse 19 says, but they were afraid of the people's reactions. The people had authority, they just didn't even know it. So I want to call that unknown persuasive authority. You didn't even know you had it, but it had the ability to persuade those in positional authority that you had more authority than you had. Make sense? A little bit? Okay, so another group. I call this next group the overpowered authority. In verses 9 through 12, there were three servants that were sent in the name of the landlord. Now if somebody gets sent in that time in the name of somebody, it meant they had the exact same power as the person that was sending them. So these three servants had the, uh, the, the power and the authority of the landlord, and they came. And what happened? All three were roughed up. They were sent back black, blue, and bleeding. They were overpowered. They had overpowered authority. I wonder if any of you guys feel you have some of that. Be a fit with any of these types of authority. Positional, situational, unknown, persuasive, or overpowered. 
Now, whether or not you fit with any of those types of authority, whether or not you feel like you're in charge, I think even for us, just like it was for the listeners who were keen back in Jesus' story, even for us, we are forced, after reading a story like this, to come back to the fact that God is the one in charge. God is the one in charge. We can't miss the end of the story when he comes back, takes things over, and says, I'm going to give it to other people. But with that fact, I mean, nobody would debate that this morning. What do we do with it? Do we leave feeling warm and fuzzy saying, yay, God is in charge. Woohoo! Does this make any sort of difference in our lives? Recognizing that God's in control, what does that mean our next step is? I want to take our next step directly from the text. I think we have two possible responses to the recognition that God is in control. Our response to God's control can either be, one, be broken, or two, be crushed. Be broken or be crushed. After the masses said to Jesus, surely this couldn't be true, this story. Jesus said to them in verse 17, then what does the scripture mean? The stone that the builders rejected has now become this cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And it will crush anyone on whom it falls. Two responses to God's authority. Fall on the cornerstone, being Jesus, or have the cornerstone fall on you. Be broken or be crushed. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And it will crush anyone on whom it falls. I love what the Life Application Commentary says about this verse. It says, The word broken conjures up uniformly negative images. Broken bones, broken hearts, broken toys. You don't want something you value to be broken. Conversely, in God's dictionary, brokenness is not only good, but it's essential. He uses only people whose hearts, volition, and pride have been broken. Jesus gives a double warning. Those who fall on that stone himself will be broken to pieces, while those on whom it falls will be crushed. God offers a choice of two different brokennesses. Those who cast themselves on Jesus, submitting their wills and all that they are, will be broken by him of arrogance, hard-heartedness, self-centeredness. It's not a pleasant process, but it's absolutely necessary. For those who do not submit to him, God will ultimately fall on them. An experience that can only be described as crushing. The experience and the choice is yours. Broken to pieces by him. Or crushed by him. I asked somebody this past week, hey, which would you rather be, broken or crushed? And they thought about it and they said, neither. That doesn't sound very fun. I agree. I agree. And neither of those options sounds appealing. Being broken hurts. Ask Madonna. Hey, wave with your left arm. Just kidding. Madonna spent two hours in surgery this past week, having the pieces of her left arm put back together by a surgeon. And it hurts. Being broken to pieces hurts. But the Greek word used for crushed here 
It paints the picture of being ground into dust and blown away like chaff in a field. Utterly useless. I don't want this for me. I don't want it for any of you. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. Falling takes intentionality. Who's in charge here anyways? God. He was in charge in the Old Testament. He was in charge in the story Jesus told. He is in charge today. We know this. And with this knowledge, we have a choice to make. Do we choose to fall on Jesus, allowing Him to break us to pieces, but also allowing Him to make all things new, like He promises in Revelation 21.5? Do we choose that, or do we choose the never successful? Do we choose the never successful attempts to stay in charge of our own life? And will we have God fall on us, crush us, beyond any further use for himself. Choice this morning is yours. And it's a choice that you're going to have to make every single day. Who's in charge here anyways? Let's pray. God, it's one thing for us to admit that you're in control. It's one thing for us to tell other people when things are challenging, oh, God's in control. He's got it covered. But it's another thing for us to let go of the control that we try so hard to hold on to. Father, forgive us for that. This morning, Lord, we want to choose to fall on You. And we want to choose to be broken to pieces. But we have to ask you to help us make that choice. Because it would be so much easier for us, Lord, just to pretend we have it in, in control ourselves. So we pray, Lord, today as we come across choices that, that require us to say, okay, us or you, we ask that you would help us say you. We ask this week as we come across those same choices that you would remind us of this morning. That you would remind us of the mental picture of of falling on you versus being crushed to dust by you. And God, may we choose you. We cannot do that without the help of your Holy Spirit minute by minute in our life. So Lord, help us to do that this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Christian artist Chris Rice sings a song titled, Untitled Hymn. I want to spend just some time in quiet reflection. We'll listen to the song once. Pay attention to the third verse and reflect on what we've heard and felt this morning. Jesus, come.
Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus and live. Now your burdens lifted and carried far away. The precious blood has washed away the stain. So sing to Jesus. Sing to Jesus. Sing to Jesus and live. Like a newborn baby, don't be afraid to crawl. And remember when you walk, sometimes we fall. So fall on Jesus, fall on Jesus, fall on Jesus. Sometimes the way is lonely, steep and filled with pain. So if your sky is dark and pours the rain, then cry to Jesus, cry to Jesus, cry to Jesus. Oh, and when the Spills over and music fills the night, and when you can't contain your joy inside, then dance for Jesus, dance for Jesus, dance for Jesus. the world goodbye go in peace and laugh on glory's side and fly to Jesus fly to Jesus fly to Jesus and live fly to Jesus Fly to Jesus and live. Falling on Jesus can be very hard. Step that you may not want to take on your own. We're going to wrap up the service, but if you are feeling the nudge to, to take steps to fall on Christ, to be broken to pieces... I'd invite you after the service just to come to the front, spend some time praying. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask Elena, I'll ask Orville and John, the pastor's cabinet, to come up and pray with anybody that comes forward. You need the, the, the body of believers to help you fall. Verse 3 said, fall on Jesus. Fall on Jesus. Fall on Jesus and live. God is in charge That's not going to change. May falling be your choice every single time. Choose to fall on Jesus and be broken to pieces. And I want to encourage you, when you fall and are broken, let others 
Watch. Let others see, both those inside the faith community and those outside the faith community. Because when they see you broken and yet still utterly dependent on Jesus, what a witness that will be to them. Fall on Jesus. May God bless you and protect you. May He smile upon you and be gracious to you. May He show you His favor. Peace. Make you new as well. Amen and amen. sinner, lost and left to die, raise your head for love is passing by, come to Jesus, come to Jesus, come to Jesus and live, now your burden's lifted, Carried far away, and precious blood has washed away the stain. So sing to Jesus, sing to Jesus, sing to Jesus, and live. Like a newborn baby, don't be afraid to crawl. Remember when you walk, sometimes we fall. So fall on Jesus, fall on Jesus.